We Will Not Be Tamed, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation podcast that encourages all Texans to get involved in conserving the wild things and wild places of our state. I'm Lydia Saldana with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, and we're here at Palo Pinto Mountain State Park with Texas writer and We Will Not Be Tamed Ambassador Dan Oko. It's not everybody that gets to spend two nights at a park before it gets open. So tell us about your experience these last couple, the last couple of nights. It's been terrific here. I, I really am so happy to hear that this is gonna be a public park for all Texans to use. Um, we arrived, I arrived late uh, in the dark uh, under a blanket of stars. I camped at what used to be their city park here right by the, by the lake. Uh, it was peaceful and quiet. The, the trains rumbling through had a nice romantic feel. It did not feel intrusive to me. Uh, I got up in the morning. The only other person in the campground was a, was a guy who's, who's been doing the bird surveys. Uh, and then from there, uh, just had a very peaceful, quiet morning and came up into the park. Uh, did, a, did a tour with uh, James, the superintendent here. Um, he drove us around. He showed us the two sections. I think we're in the south section now, and he also showed us the west section uh, where the headquarters is going to be, where the RV sites are going to be, uh, where some of the trails are going to be for hikers and bikers. Uh, in the west section, the Palo Pinto Creek runs right through there. Uh, there's a couple of little, you know, old farm dams. Uh, we saw bass and, you know, lots of fish. Uh, so I think it's going to be a really dynamic place. Uh, when it opens for people to come and visit. Have you had this opportunity before to be in a place before it, it opens like this? Well, you know, Powderhorn, yeah, uh, Powderhorn. Yeah. was a place that I got to visit. Uh, I, I got to go out there. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work with the, you know, covering the Nature Conservancy as well as Parks and Wildlife. So uh, the folks from the Conservancy and the Foundation got in touch when that land was acquired. Uh, and I got to spend some time there. I wrote about it for Texas Monthly, sort of, you know, portraying it like this as a, as a ranch that is for Texans that maybe are here a little late and didn't get to buy their own ranches, uh, which is about 90% of Texas, I'd say, these days. Uh, Powderhorn also, you know, just an exquisite resource for people uh, and, and environmentally, you know, diverse place. And this place, too, has uh, incredible diversity of forest, uh, hills, trees, rocks. It's, you know, it's, an, it's, it's clearly a, on, on, on the edge of a couple of different uh, ecosystems. Uh, wildlife is rich here. Um, I love being at Powderhorn. I, I, I don't think that I was the first person to catch a speckled trout from that shoreline, but I think I was probably the first one when it came into the public domain. I'm probably the first public fisherman. <laughs> to do it legally anyway, <laughs> to do, right? <laughs> to do it legally, right, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, you mentioned Powderhorn Ranch, and of course, you know, that, that was a signature project for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, leading the fundraising effort. You mentioned the Nature Conservancy. Sure. There were many, many other partners. Absolutely. But that was an incredible public-private partnership, as is Palo Pinto. I mean, right. do, you know, do you know all the background on that? James shared shared a fair amount with me uh, about about how the you know family had had decided to release the land and you know you guys had come in to scoop it up. I don't know yeah. all the ins and outs of the of the fundraising aspects, obviously, but um, just to reiterate, the legislature brought twelve point five million dollars to the table, um, kind of conditioned on the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation raising nine million dollars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're in the midst right now of raising that nine million dollars and once that nine million dollars is raised, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation is the one that's going to be building all the vertical construction. Right. So it's another, it's kind of taking that whole public-private partnership to the next 
to the next level. Right. And that's a, that's another reason why we wanted you to see this and do your photo shoot here was to kind of showcase this, right. this important project. And I think the foundation's work, I mean, it tells a story of, of, of Texas, right? We, we, are, we are a landscape that has so many beautiful resources. And again, you know, sometimes we feel a little bit starved for public access to these resources. So the importance to have these places as a, as a, as a you know, recreational space, as a natural space, uh, it's it's more and more important, and obviously in the last year where people have really discovered uh, the healing power of nature uh, in the face of a pandemic, in the face of, you know, a, a heightened uh, political climate, uh, being able to come out and, again, sleep under the stars, hear the bird song in the morning, uh, if you're a powder horn, to have the water lapping and, 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 and know that the wading birds are there, uh, you know, it's... It, it, I, I'm going to sound uh, overly romantic, but it, it, it fills the heart with uh, a real a real a real sense of hope, and I think that the it's a great investment. Uh, the foundation is, is is raising money for a for an investment that that will serve generations of Texans. You know, usually I start these conversations with kind of an introduction of the person, and we started this conversation with kind of introducing the place, Palo Pinto. So let's back up a little bit, and um, not that anybody's doing cocktail parties anymore, at least mm -hmm. not right now, mm -hmm. but when you introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know you or know what you do, what, how do you introduce yourself? What do you say you do? Right. Uh, so I've spent the last 20 years in Texas as a freelance writer. Um, people say, what does that mean? I say mostly, you know, historically I was interested in writing for magazines. I love the structure of a narrative story that you know takes a person from point A to point B, basically. Um, and and in that in that pursuit, I've worked for national outlets, international outlets, newspapers, magazines. The web has become an important uh, outlet for me as well. Um, so people say, "What do you do?" I say, "I take a lot of trips, and I write about those trips." Um, I mean, fundamentally, that's what I do. I'm very interested in the conservation of our public lands. I'm interested in, in, in wildlife and the environment. Um, but as often as not, my avenue to get there is to, you know, jump on my bike or go on a camping trip or plan a nice backpacking trip where I can, you know, see firsthand. Uh, and I think that's probably the transition that I've made since arriving in Texas where I didn't really know the landscape, where I would deal things from a policy-oriented uh, news perspective to today where after 20 years, you know, my, my say so matters as well. And I, and, I, and I really, so when people ask me what I do, I say, I'm an adventure writer. And then people usually say, how do I get your job? <laughs> um, <and laughs> so how did you narrow into that? Or was that always your focus? You've been doing it for 20 years and you came from where? Uh, well, so I moved to Texas from Montana. I have lived all over the United States. I was born in California. I was raised in New York City. Uh, Manhattan, you know, so I'm a real city kid. Uh, my dad, uh, like a lot of people, had dreams in the 70s of going back to the land. He bought a little piece of property with a small pond uh, a couple hours north of the city. Uh, he had great designs to move there one day. Um, his own Walden Pond? His own Walden Pond. Uh, uh, so I, you know, so my brother and I grew up, you know, fishing that pond and hiking the woods and tobogganing the hills and you know, it was pretty idyllic uh, upbringing, and you know, at some point when I became adolescent and uh, a little bit girl crazy, I guess, and 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 wanted to have a social life in the city, our our use of that property slowed down an awful lot. Um, and then my interest in the outdoors sort of swung back. 
of, or in college. Um, I went to college at the University of Michigan, studied philosophy and creative writing. Um, always had a, a, a hankering for literature, if you will. I was a you know, massive you know, Ernest Hemingway fan. Uh, you know, loved his stories of, of fish in the, the, the north woods of Michigan. Living in Michigan, you know, got turned on to Jim Harrison, another great, you know, writer uh, covering covering the outdoors, but also, you know, life in America at the turn of the century, at the turn of the 20th century, which is amazing to think that was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, right. <laughs> uh, but you know, really, uh, those guys had a had a had a sense of the land, and again, they were sportsmen, and they they brought that, uh, I guess, ethics which you can trace back to Aldo Leopold and other folks, but that ethics of what we do in the land matters, how we treat the land matters, and sustaining uh, that heritage allows us to continue these activities. Um, so, you know, What was I, your first writing job? What was your first job out of college? Sure. So I actually, I, I, I you know, thought I'd live on a mountaintop somewhere when I graduated college. I, I was, you know, I was... Philosophize? Yeah, philosophize, <laughs> exactly. I didn't even know how to make the writing part happen. Um, and I moved to, I moved out west. My, my first stop was Seattle, and I got a job bartending, and... You know, uh, they had. I mean, I, I was. I a was, lot of people. You, you meet a lot of people. I met bartending. a lot of people. I was a bartender once myself. So. Uh, you know, so I had. I was collecting stories along the way. And it's uh, a handy skill to have on a campsite, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, I try. I try to keep my stories when I write them for publication. They're true. Sometimes by the campfire, they're a little uh, mythical. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I was tending bar and hankering for outlets and uh there was a there was a alternative news weekly called the stranger that was started up by some brother of a friend of mine was working there and my friend called me up and said if you're still trying to write you should call these guys up uh this all blew up at the same time that they were uh, debating what to do about the spotted owl on the on the washington coast uh and uh, you know, I had gotten into the Western authors and people like Ed Abbey and so on and so forth, and I kind of, you know, took a swing for it and started covering environmental affairs. Again, even then, it was policy-oriented, but I was going out, right? I was learning to backpack. I basically taught myself to backpack in the Olympic National Forest uh, and, and the National Park there. And I was always astonished because it was, it was a place where you would drive, and you would drive through a clear-cut to the park entrance and you'd enter the park and it was I mean it was Disneyland for you know a 20 something Gen Xer so uh you know seeing elk on the hillsides and clear streams and it was and it was the mountains and I was a city kid right I grew up in New York City I was still living in Seattle I hadn't quite made the break yet and you know, it just again, it filled my heart. It, it it made me it made me want to engage, uh, and it gave me a topic to write about, which was the thing that I was kind of missing, because I was you know like a lot of twenty something year old guys, I was kind of, you know, I could be pretty mopey, and the, and 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 so it was uh, hopeful uh, to get connected to nature in that way, and uh, it brought me back. It brought me back again. My father. I mean, it wasn't like I was raised in a box in the city. I mean, my father took us out and. We went camping and we went fishing. I mean, I got my first fly rod when I was about 13. Um, so it was a way to, you know, again, to, to it, and at the, I guess it kind of connected me back into the childhood pleasures of being in the out of doors. Uh, 
And I also gave me voice to say something about something I cared about. I mean, I, I wanted to see, right? I understand there's an important industry and there are jobs associated with the timber industry and they were associated, you know, throughout. And so you were talking about people's livelihoods, but, you know, especially in the ferocity of my own 20 somethings, you know, I really wanted to see those clear cuts stop. I really wanted to see what was left, right? It was really what was left. These are the last stands of this great forest. And it was all that was left to us. So I wanted to see that area protected for the elk and for the spotted owls and for the marbled murulette and, you know, the birds and the wildlife. So uh, you found your niche. So I found writer. my niche. And from there I went to Montana, uh, I, you know, with some idea of pursuing a creative writing degree. Uh, with some idea that maybe I would continue bartending. I couldn't find a bartending job. I found a newspaper job. <laughs> I walked in the back, you know, I kind of walked into the back door of a journalism career. Uh, they they had a spot for me. I a really lovely editor and, you know, uh, people with real conviction, again, about, about, the, about nature. Isn't that interesting looking back sometimes how, y you know, you look back on what your career is and it is almost like you stumbled into it. I know I have a similar experience as well, but it's just, it's amazing when things happen like yeah. that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I mean, it's, again, I, I loved literature, but the idea that I was gonna create it somehow or, or create something proximate to uh, these great books that I loved was, you know, was, a, was a, seemed like a far reach at the time. Uh, and so what specifically brought you to Texas? Uh, my wife did uh, grad school at UT. Uh, we were we were sort of at a plateau in Missoula, Montana. Um, she'd been working in healthcare, and I'd been working at this newspaper. And I had taken over the chief editorial role at the you know bright young age of you know 28 or something. Uh, so we were we were at the top of our game in Missoula, and she looked at me and said, "I think there are bigger things out there." And I said, "Yeah, okay." I told. Told Jonathan last night, I didn't want to be in Montana without a girlfriend. So when she said that she was moving to Austin, and everybody told me that Austin was hot, right? This is so this is 1999, um, you know, and I, I always say that, you know, every place I've lived, including New York City, I arrived after the bloom was off the rose. But um, for me, you know, turning 30 in Austin and just discovering all the great things that were there, the hill country. Had you been to Texas before? I had never been to Texas. Okay. I had never been to the South. You know, I'd been, been so across the So you probably had an impression of it. I had an impression, but it was a very superficial impression. You know, I fully expected tumbleweeds and oil derricks. I didn't expect, you know, and, and, and Willie Nelson. I mean, that was it, right? I mean, I was like everybody, every other Yankee. I had no clue. And I was nervous. Uh, you know, my friends in Montana said, Oh, Austin's cool. They said, but you know, there's no Glacier Park. Like they didn't know about Big Bend. So they just <laughs> told me there was no national parks there, right? And I kind of thought, well, it's only a two day drive to get back to Montana, right? And I got, I got to Austin and, you know, fell in with a great group of guys. Uh, I was already big into mountain biking. I had published a book on mountain biking, Western Montana. Uh, so I, you know, again, my, my career was, was on its way. And, uh, you know, I came down with all my fly rods and my mountain bike and, you know, said, okay, show me what this is about. Not knowing that I would find it and not knowing that I would find the coast, not knowing about redfish, not knowing about, you know, kayak fishing, 
not knowing about the many, many rivers of Texas and running rivers. I mean, it's, it's something that's, that I've learned to do in Texas. I mean, I used to be a guy, like a lot of guys, you jump on a raft here and there in Montana, you get invited to do a float, you know, some rocking rapids. You do a half day, everybody'd hoot and holler. But, you know, planning a you know, river expedition, which is something I've had a chance to do here, going down the Devils, going down the Pecos. Uh, you know, the rivers of Texas are, are, are another dynamite resource. Uh, and so, yeah, I came down here with, without a clue. And I mean, I literally the first time, the first time I came to Texas, we, you know, we loaded up the car to get Christina down for her start of her semester. And I went back up to Montana to collect the rest of our stuff and enjoy the fall. And then came down and thought, what, what did I do? And, you know, again, it didn't take long to figure out that I had made the right choice. I've been in Texas for 20 years now. You have kids. So this is home now. This is home. Um, I have a 13-year-old daughter. Uh, she is a proud and loud Texan. Uh, I'm not sure that it always is appreciated by my folks, but um, <laughs> she really loves it. We do all the outdoor camping. Uh, she's been camping with me since she was about two. Uh, we love, you know, we, we, we started in, in Austin, but, you know, we've been in Houston for 10 years. Uh, you know, Houston, the city, again, it, I seem to have gravitated back to the city once again. But knowing what I know about Texas and the state parks, I mean, we use all the state parks. Uh, you know, there are lots of state parks within an hour, an hour and a half of, of where we live. You know, we So love. many people don't, well, I think certainly this past year with COVID, you know, Texans are discovering their their state parks, Absolutely. and we're all discovering that we need more of them, right. which is another reason Palo Pinto and the development of places like Palo Pinto and, and Powderhorn are so important. I guess state just state parks in general, have you visited all of them? I haven't been to all of, I, I think there are about 100 state parks now. I think it's nine, 89, 90. They, they, some of them went to the historical commission, so I think uh -huh. it's like 89 now, but it's it's less than that. I don't, I haven't been to all of them. I mean, some of them are rather small, right? Some of the, I mean, some of them are charming, mm -hmm. but they're rather modest. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I've been to a lot of them. I've certainly been in state parks in every region. Okay. I've been in state, you know, all the way from, you know, Paladuro Canyon down to Seminole Canyon. I've been all up, you know, Cattle Lake. I love Cattle Lake. It's one of my favorites. You know, we spent a lot of time in Huntsville. We spent a lot of time on Galveston uh, at the state park spe specifically. Now um, I remember what the train of thought was. I was going with just that a lot of people don't know the breadth of the state park system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and especially newcomers to the state. And when you're talking to folks about state parks, what do you say to them about the, the breadth and range of state parks? That was cool. That was cool. Yeah, well, it's so funny. Uh, people always want to know where to go, right? And I'm a travel writer, so I always have suggestions for where to go. People are really leery about camping, so it's nice to provide them with a close-to-home option. Uh, I mean, I always tell people, you know, we, you know, people that are in my neighborhood. 45 minutes door to door to get to Brazos Bend. The most simple thing to do is walk around that lake. The birds are amazing. The alligators, I mean, we count the alligators, right? It's always, and if we see less than a dozen, my daughter's let down. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we camped there a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
it's it's a great resource again it's 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 really just uh so i always start with the close-in parks um people also always right they want to know people especially in houston who are new to texas they want to know about west texas right they've arrived like i did to an environment where they're thinking oh i'm gonna have cowboy hats or i'm gonna have oil derricks or you know so on and so forth and you arrive in houston and it's you know it's a bayou city and the, and so they arrive in houston and after a little while they start to hanker right they want to see the wild west they want to see wild west texas and so they you know they hit me up for tips on i mean i can't tell you the number of times i've had to spill on big bend i mean i spill <laughs> on it professionally all the time uh but I, and we're heading there tomorrow my husband and i are heading right, out for a, right, a right. long weekend tomorrow so so but I, you know but it's a long drive it and it's a, a drive, drive now that i'm a family man and now that i'm in my 50s closer um, from fort worth than from houston for sure right right um i don't you know but i don't usually do the drive in a day yeah. anymore uh it's too much it's grueling yeah so i'm always looking you know there's break it up spend a day again all those hill country parks i mean you can get a reservation get in a garner it's great and it's worth spending two three days there i mean the problem is people say oh i want to go to big bend for four days and I go, yeah, but it's going to take you two days. You know, on my itinerary, it's always going to take you two days to get there. I love staying in, in Junction. Uh, South Llano River State mm -hmm. Park is amongst my favorites. And I love it even if I can't stay there. I love to go there just to swim in the Llano River. That's beautiful. Um, you know, it, if, if, if I'm there and it's, it's been in the spring, it's been hot in the park, and, it, and that's the national park, and I'm coming back and I'm looking for a state park or a place to go swimming, it's always such a great break. Um, pick up some barbecue, have a picnic, take to stick your toes in the Llano River, it's awesome. unbeatable. So you mentioned that you've been camping with your daughter since she was two. Mm -hmm. And I've posed this question to other ambassadors and I always get an interesting question, I always get interesting responses. So I'll ask you, how has being a father impacted your conservation ethic? Well, I think, you know, as I've said, I had a pretty strong conservation ethic coming into my career. Um, I think the main thing with my daughter is, is not only passing along my love of the outdoors, but passing along, uh, conceptually what it means to be a, a steward. Uh, so she's been very, uh, and she's very favorable. She sees it favorably. And what does that mean to you to be a steward? I think it means you know you don't litter you leave things better right i mean there's leave no trace but we actually do one better in my family which is we pick up trash um even in the pandemic we you know we carry a little plastic bag and we you know if they're whatever cigarette butts or orange peels or you know soda bottles we pick them up if we see stuff on the ground we don't leave it you know it's other people's garbage but it affects us all um so that's a sort of you know really baseline stuff but we're also again we live in Houston. We face climate change. Um, how do you strike a balance? One of the ways we strike a balance is we, we're, we're fortunate to ride close enough to our school that we can ride our bikes. So this year's been a little different again, but for two years, we, you know, we commuted by bike to school. We used alternative transportation up, you know, in Houston, people, you know, the other parents would say, I'm worried about you. I'd say, why are you worried about me? They say, see you coming into the park with your, you know, 12 year old daughter you know coming into the parking zone I go yeah well that's that's why I'm there and I ride my bike all over the place and 
she's very confident and you know self uh self self-aware so she's you know she's now allowed to ride her bike wherever she wants and people think that that's a you know people think that that's a lost opportunity for today's generation and it's not i mean you teach your kid the traffic laws and be heads up and give them a helmet and i mean she's got lights on her bike and now no again, headphones no headphones <laughs> yeah. oh she doesn't have a phone <laughs> we try we try to we tamp down the uh we tamp down the Screen electronics yeah. um you know and we talk a lot about it we talk you know she's she's a very funny she's a real texan right so she's a real meat eater um and we have these funny conversations about about meat and the difference between meat and wildlife um because she loves she loves to go and see animals and i say she says and nobody should hurt the animals she says and i say well what about the cows and the chickens and she says well those are raised for meat dad but she's you know her her typical christmas gift from her grandparents you know adopt an african elephant adopt an orca adopt a sea turtle you know we we're, we're huge fans of the houston zoo i'm sure that uh, i'm sure that there are all sorts of mm-hmm. partnerships there mm-hmm. as well um Good. i know i mean I, I, i'm sad that i have not gone to see their new exhibit the south american exhibit but um you know she adopted a red panda she adopted the cheetahs uh <laughs> and that's hopeful too isn't and it and that's hopeful and again in terms of giving her an avenue right it's easy to wring your hands and rent your shirt and panic about the state of the world so you know figuring out you know again we're we're privileged to have resources that we can afford a zoo membership and not only that but double down double down on wildlife programs you know double down you know buy that state parks pass you know buy the national parks pass maybe i don't use it up you know maybe i don't get my quote money's worth but if the parks get my money's worth that's all i really care about um and so for her she gets that and so between our individual efforts right small scale stuff picking up soda bottles alternative transportation commuting to the bigger stuff to looking at habitat protection and wildlife programs um we really just tried to work very hard with her to show her the importance of you know uh, i almost want to say persistent pressure on behalf of the environment on behalf of wildlife that it does pay dividends and it does mean that you know going forward she has the opportunity to do things that i've done right she will have the opportunity to take river trips through undeveloped areas of american wilderness she will have opportunities to you know one hopes at some point go and you know go to the masai mara and see the great wildebeest herds these are things that you know and i think i think we live in a world now where all those connections are really solid you know growing up i mean again i didn't know what was in texas right i mean I didn't know what was in Africa per se. I mean maybe I did for Marlon Perkins, but you know, uh so we've raised her in Houston, which is a international city to think about uh, you know, her 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 role is not just a Texas Texan and a Texas citizen, but a, a global citizen and and what that might mean because I think, you know, I think we're, you know, we're facing a big fight to to save what's left. And again, for me, you heard me say it before, my passion to be a writer grew out of a notion that that voice would provide 
an opportunity to save what's left. And so I think, you know, I, you know, I, I have integrated all of this myself. So when I talk about raising my daughter to accept personal responsibility, that's actually me acting on that same personal responsibility. I want her and her friends to understand that they can be a voice uh, for the environment and a voice. And, and, and that, that doesn't always have to be so serious and heavy, right? right. I mean, I'm, I tend to get a little heavy, but I mean, you know. It's also uh, fun and beautiful it's fun and joyous. It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. to send her and her friends, I mean, that we, we celebrate her. We often take her and her friends to a state park. We did it last year to take her, you know, the year before to take her to Huntsville. And they went hiking without us. She took her friends and they, they, they went and hit the Lone Star hiking trail out of, out of, the, out of Huntsville. Um, or maybe it was out actually, yeah, on a Double Lake. We were actually at Double Lake, um, which is a national forest Sounds campground. like some great family memories. Yeah. There. So do you want to um, maybe delve into a little, what you've been working on for the last, oh, I don't know, few months, year, what's ahead? You sure. Talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, I, I, again, I've been a magazine writer for a long time. Mag the magazine industry is, is a little bit upside down. Um, and the publishing industry is also upside down. The way we consume media is uh, changing. Uh, Gen Xer, so, you know, have, have, have uh, an, an affinity for the material world, <laughs> for being able to pick up a book or a magazine. I still love that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think magazines especially, uh, the one thing that I think that's missing on the Internet is, is photography. Um, the big, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a surfeit of photography on the internet. Most of it's pretty good, but a lot of it's a not. A lot of it's not. Yeah. And, and, and to, you know, to find an image that captures your attention for, you know, I mean, think about the last time you looked at something for 20 seconds. I mean, it's not a long time. It's not a big slice of your life, but. Have you yeah. seen Jonathan Vale's work? <laughs> I'm going to be looking for it. <laughs> so. Um. But so, uh, so that said, uh, I've been, you know, sort of transitioning myself, um, and the things I've been working on are, uh, you know, a whole series of articles. I did a bunch of stuff about uh, adventure, uh, adventuring in, in, in a pandemic era. Um, how do we face risk? How do we deal with, uh, staying healthy at a time when there's such a threat to so many people's health, uh, so I did this 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 spring and summer I did a bunch of stuff. Uh, Do you have some general tips on that that you can share with us? You know, I mean, I I I don't want to sound like a school marm. I think uh, that the the general tip is is you know you want to stay out of the hospital. Um, I think that different people have a different level of comfort and a different level of skills acquired. Um, you know, I mean, masking up, keeping the windows down, uh, keeping the group small. Uh, all of that. I mean, you know, I've been in some of the in some of the state and national parks uh, during the pandemic. You know, it's a little bit hard sometimes to see a group of ten or fifteen people yeah. around a campfire. Yeah. I just think it's pretty safe, but the preference and it's the preference is to keep people safer by doing smaller groups. Right. Um, I also think it's very hard in this day and age uh, of social media, which I think is great and it's a great way to connect with people especially given the social isolation but you know if you're running around all across the country you know you're using a lot of resources and I don't think that you should necessarily have to you know stay at home if if, if there's not a order to stay at home but I do think that you know posting all of that stuff you know creates attention and we already know that there's attention there you know 
uh, we tend to we tend to post our best life online, and you know, for somebody who's stuck at home, or for somebody who's you know caring for for an elderly relative who who can't get out of town, for somebody whose kids can't go to school right now because the schools closed down, it's just a little bit about being sensitive, right? It's mm -hmm. a compassion, and I guess you know you I know this is kind of not a direct answer in terms of being safe outdoors, but I think that if you can think in terms of being compassionate about your adventuring. Um, you both think about it in terms of go ahead and do what you want to do. If you love to rock climb and you can't live without it, then go ahead and do it. But, you know, realize that if you fall off that rock face, you know, or, you know, I mean, I was mountain biking here yesterday. I had, you know, Jonathan was, you know, there in his truck, so I was not by myself. But I would think very seriously about, you know, also solo adventuring seems to me to be the other side of it. There's, you know, so find a comfort level with a small group of people. Um, be responsible, follow the rules. The state parks right now, they're full. Um, mm -hmm. They're full in part because they're at limited capacity and they're full in part because people are going online and booking all the reservations they can, uh, sort of like people were hoarding toilet paper. I th and dream about a day like this, right? right? <laughs> and dream about a day like this. So I think that the, I think that the broader you know, question is, you know, how you, know, you take care of yourself in the same way that you would at home. Um, and I guess that's the, the main gist is I think that the rules of thumb are the same, that, that, that what would you do at home? What would you do, you know, if, you know, with your kids, you know, what are you, do, what are you doing to accommodate? Because not everybody's doing something to accommodate. But if you're interested in accommodating the fact that we're living in a pandemic, it means just scaling everything back a little bit. I mean, it offers great opportunities. I mean, there really is no better place to be than a state park on a sunny day um and it will if you've been stressed out and you've been watching the numbers and you've been listening to the politicians argue about what's effective and then you, you know, hear a sandhill crane and you can un exactly you can unplug you hear a sandhill crane or you hear the bird song or you hear the creek burble um you can really you can really just you know get your head straight yeah uh, so I, and 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 as someone who's who who needs to have their head straight for my work, you know, I the the only stress that I really like is the stress of having a deadline in front of me, and uh, because that I, means I that's, that's, that's right, right. That's a, that's a paycheck. Yeah. You know, that's something I can manage. Um, so. Do you want to mention the? I know you mentioned a book. Yeah. Before so we started recording. I just started. I uh, just signed a book contract with uh, Deep Vellum Publishing, which is out of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, it's, it's a nonprofit. They've been specializing in, in, in literature and translation, but they're starting a new Texas uh, series. And I was fortunate enough, because of my experience as both a travel writer and an environmental journalist, uh, to get connected with them. And so I'm working on a book about a, a resilience, survive, survival, uh, recreation, uh, you know, global warming, and the Texas coast. Got a and few light topics there. A few light topics. <laughs> I mean, it's not supposed to be a treatise. Yeah. Um, so I'm, it's, it's, you know, I'm working very, it's, it's going to be a, dare I, it's going to be in depth, but it's going to be a sort of quick and dirty based on my experiences. You know, I've fished the whole place, you know, I've been all up and down. I've been to the mouth of the Sabine and I've been down at the mouth of the, you know, at Boca Chica, down at the mouth of the Rio Grande. I've fished, you know, the lower Laguna Madre. I've pulled snook out of, you know, the Brownsville Ship Canal. I've, you know, I've 
you know, tried to learn how to surf. I've paddled all over the place. So, you know, it's really absorbing these beautiful places and then looking at what those places might look like, you know, according to some of the climate change mm. predictions, and then looking at how, uh, you know, money from the BP oil spill, money that you and we have raised uh, at the foundation, the work of groups like the Nature Conservancy, to build resilience into the future. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's a carbon sequestration that happens when you plant marshes um, and what those marshes are gonna look like if, if, if sea level rise continues, um, to, you know, what, what it means to live, again, I live in Houston, I live in Hurricane Alley. You know, we've seen historic storms. You know, we've seen more storms this year. They ran out of names, right? <laughs> I think that there's, you know, there's science there that's telling us that we need to, you know, we just, I don't, you know, people want to argue about development or lack of development or, you know, business as usual. Well, business as usual has got to embrace uh, some prescription. I don't know what that prescription is. I'm really focused on the description, if you will, yeah. of what I've experienced, hoping that by putting that out there and telling those stories, people will, again, sort of like understand, you know, what's at stake. What's the timing on publishing? Uh, it'll probably be out in 2022. Okay. Uh, I'm supposed to finish it up. I'm, I'm reporting it as we speak, although I'm a little away from my beat right now. But, um, I've, you know, I've been going down to the coast and talking to people, and I'm looking forward to catching up with some more awesome. uh, fishing guides and looking to, forward to catching up with some of the people that do oceanographic studies, uh, cl climatologists. You know, there's big debates in Houston about the Ike Dyke and what are we going to do to protect the ship canal. I think it's all very important. I think it's... You know, uh, again, the model has to embrace the economics and the ecology of what it means. Um, and I think that it's it's interesting. I'll say one last thing about it because I, I think it's very interesting because people are always like, well, how you know, how does fishing fit in with, uh, you know, climate change? I mean, and, 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 and if you just look at the species that are that are persisting along the Texas coast, um, and what we catch, they're influenced by, you know, uh, water temperatures. So right now I know that Parks and Wildlife is, you flounder. know, looking at the flounder yeah. very hard. Yep. I, you know, I, it, I, I have observed in, in past articles that we may be at a, at a point where the, te the big Texas three, you know, this, it may be snook. I mean, snook have been found all the way up to Matagorda and Sabine now. So, you know, they're really a subtropical species. Uh, they may be uh, competing with the flounder, maybe not directly. I would have to talk. That to could the be a whole nother, there'd be a whole so, nother conversation. Right, a whole yeah. nother conversation. Yeah. But again, but that sort of stuff, you know, I mean, I've been really fascinated with the history of the tarpon, um, you know, pushed out of the, you know, estuary systems of Texas. You know, people thought they were gone. It turns out they aren't gone. They're offshore and uh, not far offshore. Uh, again, great persistent, you know, we've seen a great success uh, the end of, you know, the end of uh, catch and keep, catch and kill fishing for tarpon, which pe nobody ate. So killing them was only a matter of, uh, you know, trophy, trophy hunting, basically, uh, has been a, has been a great, I mean, they're great success stories too. And that, again, for my book, I want to look at the success stories. I want to look at where the avenues for a better world are. Um, so that's sort of, and, and hopefully, you know. Sounds like a very ambitious project. Thank you. I could talk to you for another hour, right. but I won't. <laughs> Let's wrap this up with, I just, I want to ask you the question. You know, you got a phone call from the mm -hmm. Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation right. asking you if you wanted to be a We Will Not Be Tamed ambassador. Right. 
and you're sitting here today because you said yes. Right. Why did you say yes? Uh, well, Aaron had a really good sales pitch. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I mean, we, we have overlapped in our careers now. I've, I've been a big fan of Texas Parks and Wildlife. I've, I've worked with the agency extensively ever since I got here uh, for 20 years. You know, it was not long before I walked into the offices and, and, and sat down. Uh, with the editors there, and they said, "Well, why don't we know about you?" And I said, "Well, you know, I just got one here. Of these, right, I just got here exactly." Um, and that I, was twenty years ago. And that was twenty <laughs> years ago, right? So, uh, you know, again, I think I think access to public lands in Texas is is crucial. I think the expansion of public lands is crucial. I think the opportunity to uh, be an ambassador. I, you know, I've been doing it in an unofficial capacity for a long time. So the ability to, you know, grab a grab a cap and, you know, come out and talk to people about what's important to me, it was absolutely simpatico with with everything that I've been interested in for you know decades. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. Brought to you by Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, we will not be tamed. Calls us all to appreciate the wildness of Texas the vastness of our Texas spirit, and why we should be inspired to conserve it. Find out more at wewillnotbetamed.org.